Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now, Sydney's nightlife is losing its beat. By the time the city's lockout laws were lifted in March this year, this great city of ours is completely, from my point of view, unrecognisable to pre-lockout days. And guess how much this decision has cost us? $16.1 billion annually. That's a lot of loot. These days, many people want to stay in, stream a movie, order a dinner in, use a home delivery app, etc. This stuff kills businesses and probably more importantly, kills the community that surrounds the business. What's happened to our city's nightlife? This is an important question that impacts all of us. My guest today is a bloke called Michael Rodriguez. Now, he's the newly appointed, what they call the New South Wales 24-hour economy commissioner. It's a brand new appointment, new to this government for that matter. He wants to inject life back into the city and he's very passionate about it. You're going to see that. And I reckon he's got the chops to pull it off. In 2007, he launched the Global Lifestyle Brand Timeout in Australia. In recent years, as Sydney's nighttime economy found itself basically gasping for air, Michael launched and chaired the Nighttime Industries Association, which helped lift the lockout laws. And now he's hustling to bring government, business owners, Sydney siders, and all the other stakeholders together to bring back our city life. This is not an easy gig. It's complex and there's lots of agendas, but I'm going to give this guy a crack. He looks like he's got the wherewithal to do it. I want to know what his plan is, how a vibrant nightlife economy will actually help businesses. Why him? Why the hell can he do it and nobody else? Or why can he do it in particular? And why does he want to do it? Let's get into it. Mike Rodriguez, welcome to The Mentor. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. I'm loving your shoes, mate. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, what do you call those, pocket chief? Pocket chief. The pocket yeah, chief. Pocket chief. You don't Handmade pocket chief by my wife. Is it very good? <laughs> but how, how hard was that to put that in there? Actually, it's not quite the same tones. They might not be able to pick it up on the cameras, <laughs> but I'm getting a slightly <laughs> heavier, because right. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, you get lighter as you go up. I mean, you've got the, you're grounded with a heavy, dark purple. Yeah. And, uh, and then it goes, it sort of fades away into a mauve. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I'll do what I can. Well, that, that's sort of interesting. I mean, like, let's kick it out. Sure. I mean, like, kick the ball around the joint. Like, it's uh, when you're in a new role, we won't sort of get right into the new sure. role. But, I mean, there's a new role. You have to sort of introduce yourself as a person, and there's got to be something associated with that. And a little bit of flamboyance I'm getting here um, in a white jacket, sort of a bone-colored jacket, you know, like some uh, full-on color. I mean, what's that about? Tell me. Well, I've gone into this government role, and I report into a minister. Minister Ayres, who's very clear, he doesn't want me to become a, a bureaucrat, and uh, and I've embraced that. And partly, it's about reminding myself of who I am and what I'm there to do. Uh, when I was running Time Out and started campaigning, actually to get rid of lockout, I, I bought a couple of pairs of shoes, and and the motif was red and black and white. That's the Time Out colours, and I've worn these trainers, these Adidas trainers, into the ground over a period of three four years. Um, they're tattered, and it demonstrates the the length of the struggle it was to, I guess, see change in the city. But each time you put them on, it reminds you of what you're about. And it, so the question is, who's it for? Is it for someone else or is it for me? And or both? Or both, correct? Yeah. yeah. So, and I've embraced that partly with this new role because it's a storytelling role at its heart, and you've got to find ways to communicate quickly sometimes around what is, a, some, depending on your perspective, a very complicated area. 
Uh, and so it, it has been a deliberate choice. Uh, and, and also, um, be noticed, be remembered. Well, it got my attention. Like yeah. I went, you got my attention as soon as you walked in. Mm. Like that, the first thing I saw was the purple shoes. Mm. And then, I've, as I said, it faded into the, the lilac um, cravat, what do we call those things up there? I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I could have asked you, do you have um, COVID or the flu or <laughs> cold? Do you need to? But like, and you're right, it's about telling a story. So let's talk about the story. Yeah, sure. So let's, let's go back to the beginning of the story. Let's go right back to chapter one. Mm. Um, Mike Rodriguez, um, born where? Born in Sydney, yeah. Born in Sydney. Of, of immigrant parents from India. Parents from India? Yeah. Uh, whereabouts in Sydney though? Uh, born where? I like grew where, up in Liverpool. Liverpool, okay. Uh, Liverpool yeah. kid. Um, you know, uh, I guess that sounds like to me perhaps working class parents. Uh, a bit of a mix. My mum's my a GP yep. uh, and my dad is a merchant seaman, was a merchant seaman, and they arrived in Australia at, towards the tail end of white Australia policy. And I think there was a doc, doctor shortage and it's part of the reason my mum came in. And th- this Indian community took home in Glebe of all places. And then there was the diaspora from Glebe. And I think dad was just like, oh, look at the property prices out in Liverpool. And so out we landed in Liverpool. Because and- it's cheaper. I think so. And also because family area where young families, mum's a, a GP, so family doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and yeah, just ended up in Liverpool and lived there. And mum's so still, still practicing out there, actually. You were a lawyer at one stage, mm. or you practice as a lawyer. Um, is this the, um, I'm having kids in the family for a start. Oh, I was one of three. One of three kids. Yeah. So is this the typical uh, first generation, you got to go to university and become a lawyer type deal? Um, yeah, kind of. Kid yeah. in the West Suburbs. Yeah. You got to. Yeah, that's turn, right. Turn yeah. it around for no, us. Yeah, you know? I think it's a, a shared story for a lot of immigrants, yeah. maybe. Um, Certainly in this country, anyway. Yeah, and and you, that that thing of I always look at it, um, immigrant parents as the best entrepreneurs because it takes a level of entrepreneurship to leave your home and travel across the world. I think and start afresh, and uh, I think I don't know. All my friends, it's very similar. Uh, your parents worked and worked hard so your kids could have a better future. What does that mean? It means going to university, and getting self educated, and that was my story. Yeah, but it's sort of, and I, I grew up the same way. But it's sort of, especially in the West, but it's a sort of a typical. It's a bit typical. Um, mm. You're right, typical now, but it's a bit typical um, in terms of what what the expectations are of both parents and the kids. Where, where'd you go to school? St. Greg's in Campbelltown. Okay, St. Greg's. Um, good rugby school. We're a good footy school. Yeah, footy school. Rugby yeah. league at the time. Rugby league at the time. It probably still is. I mean, I know that uh, I think um, Trent Robinson went to St. Gregory's. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and his brother and a um, number of other uh, prominent rugby league players and or coaches. Um, yep. So you're at St. Greg's, um, a good school. Um, when you were in year 12, did you say to yourself, I'm going to become a lawyer or what happened? Oh, the real story is that my dad was putting a lot of pressure on me to become a doctor because it's, there's a hierarchy in, and I was raised Catholic. So it's a priest first and then a doctor, doctor of the soul, doctor of the um, body, he would say. And I, I, uh, real honest answer is I feel like a one percentage point short of being able to get into UNSW med school. And I didn't really want to go to Newcastle to do it. And, um, and you have that expectation of wanting to, honor your parents, uh, you know, effort, I guess. And, and I, I, I just, I kind of didn't really want to do it. I, uh, and I always, I wanted to be in business is what I put forward, but that didn't compute in that Indian way of thinking, you know, he does business degree. Uh, so how old are you now? Cause it probably wasn't a business degree around the time. How old are you well, now? Yeah. You couldn't really do it out of uni. It was commerce, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, you yeah did sorta, MBAs yeah. or whatever. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, I'm 45 now and I, uh, was going through the UAC guide. I remember those and I, and, and my brother had done science and law <laughs> and my, my dad was over my shoulder and he looked at this one. He goes, engineering and law. He's like, two professions, price of one. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, as it turned out, dad, that was two professions for the price of two. And, uh, and you know, so I did engineering law at, at UNSW, which was, uh, oh, it was a bit intense because civil engineering in particular, oh, engineering is really, I find engineering is hard. Like, law, to be honest, I don't think it's as hard. I think it, it, it's hard to be good at it, but. Yeah. You know, you can kind of read it and answer questions. Yeah, and sort yeah, of know right or wrong. What's an opinion? Yeah, here's the classic example, right? If a bridge falls down, the engineer goes, "Yeah, I got the calculations wrong." The law, the law, lawyer goes, "Was there a bridge?" You know, that's yeah, the yeah, difference. Yeah. And say, so, yeah, 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 yeah. engineer is more binary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I like. Yeah, I, yeah. I kind of like that, or I liked it at that stage in my career, anyway. You like that way of thinking? 
Yeah, I, I do because it's a bit more tangible. And like, so I spent a little bit of time working for Leighton's out on construction sites, building things and, uh, you know, like 20, 20 year old, like building for the Olympics. I mean, I was amazing, you know, walking around and uh, just the adrenaline rush of contributing something to the city, you know, at that time. And, uh, and, and, and seeing the result of your work, your lawyer often, particularly transactional ones, they celebrate the deal closing with a, a big lunch and then it's quite intangible, yeah, to yeah. be honest, I, I think. At least that was my recollection of it. Uh, well, unless you're around. It's not intangible when the money lands in the bank account. <laughs> but you I, know more about that yeah. than me. Well, so I, I, so where, where did you go to uni? Which uni? Uh, UNSW. UNSW. Okay, yeah, so yeah. Well, that would have been pretty tough to get into because uh, law degrees – whether it, whatever the combined degree mm. with it, that's pretty hard. So you must have done quite well on the HSC. Yeah. So were you a studious young man? Or? Yeah, yeah. At school, that that was pretty. Um, I would describe it as controlling about making sure you got a good mark to get into university. So I had a really disciplined regime, um, which involved. What does that mean? Explain what that means. Like being disciplined. Well, what the discipline regime is that your dad sort of imposed, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. So he was in the merchant navy, as I mentioned, you know, and so he almost ran the house like the Von Trapp family. Uh, timetable up at this hour, piano lessons, train, you know, the school. I used to come home from school at four and go to sleep for two hours and then get up and study from six till midnight. Uh, that was the regime. This went on for like, you know, 18 months in the lead up to the HSC, such a focus on getting that mark. Uh, and I, it's interesting because I was not allowed to drive. I definitely wasn't allowed to drink um, by my parents, that was, um, in the pursuit of this uh, attainment. And I guess the what happened when I got to uni was I was like discovered freedom. And my studious nature declined somewhat while I found. Particularly in the first couple of semesters, <laughs> yeah, what happened to me too. I mean, I, yeah. I actually because I had a similar sort of regime, but yeah, right. but twenty years earlier, you know, it was a pretty strict regime. And when I went to university, I went totally off the rails. I went to New South Wales, um, my uh, uh, commerce law, my first year. Um, I didn't do economics at school. Um, I had no idea what commerce was about. And um, I, I didn't go to any lectures because UNSW in those days was all tutorials, no lectures. It was yeah, just yeah. a few lectures, but mostly tutorials. I didn't. I missed out a lot of tutes. I didn't really understand the discipline associated with the first semester. I I failed two subjects because I didn't even I didn't attend anything, and I just said oh, I can learn this <laughs> stuff. It was it was a free for all out there. Yeah, everybody everybody just wandering around, hanging around the library lawn. Yeah, I remember arriving in civil engineering and the. Sediment was expressed very well with this big case of VB that was sitting out the front, and this was like you're here to drink. And I'm like, what about the study bit? No, well, they'll come later. Don't worry about that. Is uh, uh, you know, I guess that was the university culture at the time, really. Wasn't yeah, it totally it? was. It was, uh, but when I had this freedom, like you just said, wow, mm. how cool was it? I used to put the surfboard in the back of my car, <laughs> and uh, I would go surfing all morning. Like yeah. I wouldn't even attend anything. Like uh, I don't know what I was thinking. I was only pretty young. I was only I was when I was you know seventeen. So. Um, like a pretty mature, to be frank with you, to get out of a structured environment. So, you so you you finish univer- you you finish your s- civil engineering uh, law degree, the double degree. Yeah. Um, what made you go? Did you go? Did you do the college of knowledge and uh, college of uh, knowledge, and then with the engineering, you had to do a traineeship as well. So, yeah. the, my Leighton's work was largely under a traineeship, and then uh, just to get your hours up and whatnot to yeah. qualify for a unit, and then. Uh, I remember that uh, I was out on construction sites and this project manager, Lee Price, all engineers, he said to me, Mike, after two years, he goes, I've got to put you in head office. And I'm like, but Lee, I love being out here. And he's like, yeah, but you're a lawyer, mate. Like, I'm a, like you better go spend some time with the general counsel. And uh, so I did that and under much, you know, duress. And I, to be honest, didn't enjoy that. I had to, like, it's just, you know, looking at documents and trying to understand things that you know as opposed to building something yeah and uh but uh, it was valuable i'm glad that someone gave me that push and sort of looked out for me in that sense uh because i wonder whether my career would have gone the way it did because from that um relationship uh so i I didn't blitz my law degree and if you want to go work at allen's or mel you've got to be you know and they're going to pick the top 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 right i don't even do a clerkship i'm like what's a clerkship yeah, and um, yeah. <laughs> I was too busy doing the engineering stuff and, and um, that was 30-odd contact hours just for engineering. And so I didn't I, – I did okay but didn't, you know, get that first – Yeah, but most of the guys are doing commerce or arts. It's not, they're not doing engineering where they have to sit down that's and right. do physics and, yeah, yeah, that's right. and uh, yeah. you know, cal- yeah. calculations and – That's right. And so I landed an honours degree in engineering and sort of, you know, sec- like whatever, second class in law. But uh, – th- so I couldn't get into law firms through the front door. 
uh, and then uh, I, I remember going, this is crazy. Like construction, look, Sydney is a town built on construction. I, I can, I know construction law. Like I, I, I can understand engineering and this is surely, how many people have that? No one, right? As my 20 something self. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And so I managed to get myself in front of a recruiter and most recruiters like, oh, you're a uni student and I'll see you later. This recruiter is like engineering law. Give me a day. Comes back, five interviews all top five firms or roughly. And then, you know, went into Allen's off the- Because they all have, yeah, because they all have um, a, a, yeah, a section which is- Correct, yeah. You know, like litigation around, you know, construction exactly problems right. or whatever it is. Exactly right. Just yeah. building the, the contract. Yeah. yeah. So that was good. How long did you stay at Allen's for? So it's about three years at Allen's. And then like a lot of Aussies, I went over to do my overseas stint. <laughs> I was having such a good time at Allen's. I racked up a significant amount of credit card debt and I was like, oh, I better go pay this off. <laughs> Straight out. So when I went, worked that, that's when I went to work in Dubai as a projects projects right. infrastructure lawyer, really. Yeah, with, with uh, one of Alan's overseas associate firms? Yeah, no, it was the English law firm, Denton's. The Australian law firms weren't there at the time. Uh, now now I think they are. Uh, or maybe they're not. But anyway. But they have associations. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. They've all that. So firms. anyone who's listening, Alan's is, used to be a firm called Alan Hemsley, which is a huge firm, one of the largest firms in the country, along with Mallison's and a few others. It's sort of like a... A KPMG or a Pricewaterhouse-style firm in this country when it comes to legals. Um, so it's one of the big firms. And they usually only take the best, um, but they get the best. Well, they get the biggest and most complicated deals to, to look at. So there's great experience, yeah. great discipline. Again, they work your ass off. They make these young graduates work a million hours a week, and uh, you hardly you don't get paid very much um, until really the game is to become a partner in these places right, when you actually make cool. the money, because then the, the new partnership makes the money out of the young blokes like you in the next, <laughs> as the cycle goes, which you know is exactly, model. <laughs> I do exactly the same way as accounting firms work. So why the hell did you get out of there? Why did you leave? As a lawyer? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, so how I old know. were you too? So I think I was about 20, oh, I was coming up to 30 actually by the time I'd done three years in Dubai, enjoyed that. Uh, it was a great time to be in Dubai. It was like, Parting like it was 1999, basically. Um, I ran into a guy who was uh, publishing Time Out, which is a media yep. um, publication. So, did you just explain Time Out? Time Out's a, a global global media business. Global media business. And at that particular time, uh, they Time Out itself was running the UK and US operation, but they were licensing Time Out to other territories. So was it in Dubai? So it was in Dubai, and it was a super title in Dubai because magic mix of expats yeah, yeah, totally. and wanting to go out. And a place that's new, right? Yeah, so, so like you're, you're living in uh, Dubai, living in one of those sort of blocks of apartments where you can't, outside of the place, you can't go and do anything that the, the general Sharia law um, doesn't allow. Yeah. But at the same time, there are places you can go. Correct. Yeah. Um, where you can live your life as a so-called Westerner. Yeah, um, and you know, And, and you, but they've got to find where the fuck is that place or, or where, where's the buzz? What's yeah, going on? Right. Where? Yeah. And Time Out thought, well, here's a posse for us. Yeah. We'll run our, we'll, we'll publish our magazine here because everybody wants to find out all these expats. Here's our market. And it's like a ambitious city, right? So there's like a, a building sense and there's hotels going up left, right and center and everyone's coming there to make money, which is a real so, sort of uh, like, I, I, I use the word ambitious, but it's like. Indulgence, the word. Yeah, indulgent and like yeah, yeah, totally. aspirational. It's like yeah, yeah, it's fully. Like, I mean, yeah. I haven't been there for a couple of years, but like I used to go there quite a bit. And it was like, it was a bit sort of confusing the place, but um, it is extraordinarily indulgent for for everybody, but everybody has a different style of indulgence there. Mm. And then, uh, but if it's on, it's on. Mm. It's, it's on big time. Well, yeah, and I like maybe it's going off topic a bit, but I had this experience and you said everybody, I want to stop you there because it's not everybody actually. Like there's yeah, a subcontinent labor force. There's yeah, yeah, like true. people doing it. And I found it particularly uh, interesting, not interesting, um, reflective because I remember driving, uh, I bought a um, convertible Mercedes when I was over there and drive to work, get up to 180 on the freeway. Within, and I was there in like five minutes, right? That was, that was the, the dream, living the dream. I remember pulling up one day alongside this busload of construction workers, yeah. like, all of whom look like me. Yeah. And is there another, what do you mean? Is they either from subcontinent or they're from the Philippines or sub, something? Subcontinent like mainly. Yeah. This yeah. would mainly be Indian. Yeah. Similar, similar age even, you know. Yeah. And, and the construction conditions in Dubai during summer, you can imagine, you know. Like, yeah, it's like 50 degrees yeah, Celsius. Yeah. And, and like I have to say, you know, I would look out the office of my law firm at the construction site next to me and I'd be seeing just this – 
you know, potential lack of safety and, you know, like, so, and, and I just had this different experience living in Dubai because when I go out at night, people would assume I was like a low cut, like a lower class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the construction workers. So I get stopped at, I get stopped at venues while my expat mates would go in and, and, and then I used to, you know, that kind of shit pisses me off. But then literally we'll stop you like the, the yeah. authorities or the the doorman security. Right. I'll be going to Western Western places, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Where, and so uh and and I remember being stopped and getting pissed off. And then after I used to embrace it, I used to wait until my mates would go in. Then I'd walk up and they'd say, Sorry, you can't come in. I'd say, Why? And they go, Oh, well, you know. And I'm like, Oh, and then I'd chat to the bouncer for a bit and he goes, oh, Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Australia. And he goes, Oh, well, you can go in then. Yeah. It's <laughs> sort of like duality of uh of existence and um i guess maybe i don't know why i'm saying that but i just i just sort of i felt i suppose after a while it just that superficial nature of the place got to me because uh, it's all for show it was all for show it was a bit like the those turf strips on the sand you could rip them back but the sand's still below yeah yeah. you know projecting one thing but actually doing another and so i lost um the buzz and and actually got a bit not lonely but like and because people are just churning through the city, right? So you'd be meeting people, everyone's very shallow, they're there for themselves. And, and you know, the thing with money, no matter how much money you've got, the person sitting next, you've probably got more, yeah, right? Yeah. So, and it's this kind of like environment. And, um, and I just was, you know, I used to go, actually, I'd just sit at home and, and be by myself and feel flown and feel that emotion. But it was quite good because it built my resilience about, you know, going actually, I can I can be by myself, and that's perfectly okay. Do you think? Do you think is one way of describing it? It's a bit. It's a bit disconnected. So uh, it, those places can disconnect people. Notwithstanding, you just talked about time out, which mm. is actually mm. there to connect to, to connect people. Yeah, connect. Correct. So let's just talk about time out then, because in that environment is a bit. Um, it's sort of ex- it's exclusive. It's yeah. And uh, it's yeah, not right. inclusive to use a common term these days. That's right, yeah. Um, it's not inclusive. It's not inclusive race, colour, mm. creed, social, uh, socioeconomic stuff, et cetera. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting thing. It's just addressed in Dubai, at least then. I'm not going to say now. That's correct. To yeah. a certain segment um, and therefore it becomes part of the exclusion of others from the ability to enjoy their life and entertainment and socialisation and communication and connect- connections. Mm. But Tom, it's not like that. No, and that's a it's a really good insight there. And and the irony, of course, is that the people that are being excluded are the ones presenting the colour that people want. So I used to take my mates uh, in Dubai out to Karama, which was the Indian area, and it was cheap as chips and really great food because population eating it is the same as the population cooking it and clean environment, unlike. A lot of places you have to go in India, and they're like, "This is amazing." And uh, my dad, I love my dad. He turns up and he's like, uh, "He'd go out and do a degustation, five different types of Indian restaurants in one night. This from here, this from there, you know." And uh, and and it's one of those things. It's uh, time out as a as a business is there to inspire people to go out and enjoy their city. And I think that the in its best guys, it was it was in 1968 London where there was. I guess all these great things going on. This is the founding story of Time Out. Tony Elliott founded it uh, in in the sixties, but he felt that uh, the culture was not democratized and being consumed by everyone. It was there was an element of elite and that that the culture was for. But there's all these great things going on, Bowie playing and stuff. So he just wanted to share that story so that people could find it, find their city or visitors to the city could find these great things. And, and that's time out at its best. And, you know, happily, uh, I think in our story here, uh, over a period of time, took a long time um, to, to do that, to get to a position where you can have a, enough of a robust business model that you can not only deliver the AB demographic for the brand that needs to market its premium, whatever, to that demographic but also uh pursue timeout's ultimate mission um because some of those things ca- aren't capable of being commercialized if you get where i'm going yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so i just want to pause you there for a second so so the it's sort of built timeout's like a marketplace to some extent um it's a magazine marketplace where it sort of says um vendor meet consumer Vendor of entertainment, vendor of food, wine, whatever. Yeah. Vendor of that's right. Entertainment, let's call it. Yeah, uh, entertainment's and, good. Yeah, um, uh, vendor meet 
consumer um, or buyer. Um, and these days these things are done by the internet or done digitally, but then it was a magazine. Um, and that, which is great. That's, that's, its, that's its how, that's its process, but its purpose, its why is, and I like the word you use, is democratization. In other words, making all these things available to everybody. Giving people choice. Yeah, yeah, and not not necessarily saying every venue is available to everybody, no. but it's 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 making it available so you don't have to. But nonetheless, they build awareness around it. So it's yeah. democratization of yeah. entertainment, which is interesting. We're going to talk about this in the second half, but it's really interesting in terms of your current role. Mm. Um, yeah. Because can I ask you this? So because um, I, I did say if we could just pause it for a second, but can I ask you this? How important, and why is it important um, that? these things get democratised. Why is that important? I mean, because that goes right to the very heart of the lockout rules, everything. I mean, what are we being denied? Is there a natural, you know, we're going right back to your law, like, legal days, I mean, I mean is a natural know, right? The, like, oh, and I should know the name of the philosopher, but I've forgotten. Um, but it's, a, it's Greek. I feel like I'm going to have to look this up and come back to you. Jess Scully talked about it. There was a Greek philosopher who talks about this principle of getting the most out of life, right? Like, like what is that? Well, it's either going to be Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle, one yeah, of those one of three. Them. Let's assign it to one They're of them. They're probably all three because yeah. everybody copied what Socrates said. Yeah. He said it first and then they all plagiarised it. So let's yeah. say Socrates. Yeah. And so he but, – but, and, and, and that's what actually sits at the heart of the citizen's contribution or experience of society over a long period of time. Like if, um, if all we are is a, a thumbprint to generate revenue for a – Overlord, that's some sort of shitty life, right? Like, in other words, we're just not tax subjects. That's correct, um, and and <clears throat> which, so, by the way, is a lot of time how we get looked at. Get looked at, and and I use that thumbprint example because if you understand the monetization models of the new digital um, superpowers, this is largely what they see. It's uh, every time you press a button, can you can they take a clip or can you be monetized, and uh, and therefore you get into this world of the algorithm which is about ultimately controlling your behavior one way or the other. You watch this, you'll also like that. Uh, and, and, and what that does is just reinforces your existing, that reinforces, so Mike Rodriguez age 25 never evolves to Mike Rodriguez age 45 because at age 25, I've already worked out what my life's about and I'm just gonna keep doing this. There's a great monetization model for someone. And, and you'll hear me talk in other environments about the challenge that the out economy has when competing with the in economy because the in economy has made the most of that user experience and ease to keep people glued to their TVs and their couches. Uh, you can be entertained at home in two clicks, one for the TV and one for eating and drinking, which can be brought to you. When you go out, how many clicks does it take to be entertained? Right, like that's the competitive analysis on that situation. And, and why do I care? Well, I care because when you go out, you, you're thrust into a more uh, spontaneous environment, uh, more random order, a uh, way of being challenged by potentially the person who sits down next to you on a bus, who knows? Or uh, you see something that you may not have thought about and then you experience something different. You're not subject to a feed. I mean, why is it important that uh, we are more spontaneous? Why is it more important for the mouse to be out in the open because, in a natural sense as yeah. opposed to being in the controlled environment? Because we evolve, Mark. Like, but why is that more important? Because that's a more full existence and you can make a greater But why is that important? That's, <laughs> this is your five whys, right? Like, it's, why, it's why because you are, um, you, you're here for, what, three score, four score and ten these days. And over that period, you will come into – I hope. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and uh, and 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 it is necessary that you evolve so that you can make a contribution throughout your life, and you're not written off by the age of thirty-five when your thumbprint isn't as valuable as it is when you're age seventy. And you know, this comes ultimately down to one's own values and exist like beliefs, right? I suppose, uh, and and you know, for me, that's what I believe, um, and um, and and I I see anything less as a um, Look, people have the right to choose, right? I'm not going to um, have a go at anyone. You're telling they should go out. That's right, yeah. right? Like, and if you want to, uh, but you want to give them, you want to explain why it's important. That's right. To consider it. Yeah, that's right. Experiments. And there's an interesting uh, story of, of the Enlightenment era in 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 Oxford, in where the coffee house came in into being, and what would happen in the coffee houses of the day was that 
enlightened men in those days would come together and exchange ideas and news of the world, right? Unlike the bawdy talk that would happen in the alehouses. Uh, and, and this actually gave birth to things like the Guardian newspaper. Um, and, and, and that idea exchange, like if in, in my world, this is why cities exist. They're centers of knowledge and learning and culture. If you doubt anything that I'm saying, then why are we all keen to get off the couch after being locked down, right? And we want to go out and, and we've, 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 we now understand that civic cohesion. Um, and this is before you start getting to mental health issues, particularly in younger audiences um, who are deprived of, of connection. I believe that you at least need the option of a vibrant city to go out and experience those things in. Well, we're going to get to the break because I want to come back. I mean, I have some experience in um, personal experience in terms of bars and cafes mm. and things like that in Darlinghurst, for example. And those places are dead today because of lockout laws. Whether or not it's going to come back as a result of so-called relaxing the lockout rules, I don't know. Um, I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about yeah, lockout yeah, as a result of drinking booze and yeah, shit yeah. like that. Yeah. I'm very keen to find – because I, I think some communities have been completely ruined. Like the communities do not exist anymore. The whole um, fabric of those areas has changed. Yeah. Not, not just the commercials but – just the fabric of those areas of people actually going and have a coffee and having to talk to each other. Mm. Um, I'm old school. I love that environment. But, but I'm not, I want to talk to you about how we bring that back or what you're doing to bring it back or what the New South Wales government's doing to bring it back. Yeah, we'll go to the break. We'll come straight back. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, we're back from the break and I'm here with Mike Rodriguez and... Uh, well, you just um, sort of covered off was well, quite an interesting philosophical discussion about the importance of interaction with community and, and also what follows from that is democratisation of um, um, the ability to enjoy venues, entertainment or otherwise, just could be just coffee. Coffee, I guess, fits into entertainment. But, you know, we, we – but against that, like slamming straight into that has been in New South Wales, for example, and particularly here in Sydney, and particularly in places like King's Cross, is these lockout laws that um, were so heavily embraced to stop what well, is a legitimate argument to stop um, you know, people getting bashed and all this drama that was happening at two or three o'clock in the morning, probably largely due to no access to transport. But, you know, the hospitals like St. Vincent's were continually, uh, public hospitals like St. Vincent's, was continually putting up. Uh, Arguments about, look, this is how many people we've had to attend to tonight, you know, who've been stabbed or bashed or blah, blah, blah. And it was horrific. It was pretty horrifying. So the, the rule is just hit it with a crude um, mechanism, just shut everything down. Mm. And, of course, we had a massive push against that by underground by a number of people. Mm. And more recently those rules have been relaxed. COVID comes along and we realise well, then we locked down for another reason uh, everywhere. And all of a sudden we realise, oh, shit, it's pretty important that we get out and enjoy each other's company. We get out and um, chill and have coffee and sit with, within a meter of each other and, um, you know, touch a credit card or whatever the case may be. <laughs> and, uh, 
and now we've got this new role that you have in the state, awarded to you by the state government, the and um, and in particular, you know, the premier. Could you just explain to us first what your role is, and then explain the philosophy behind it? Why that role is important if you are successful in the role out of what it is you've got to do? Yeah, so uh, I guess some of the historical um, piece you've come to, and it. Um, the, the role has come out of a, a strategy published by the government on 24 hour economy. Um, this journey began three or four years by the creation of a narrative around 24 hour economy as distinct from, uh, police lockout violence and health, which was what had anchored that lockout into, uh, an unwinnable position. You can, um, well, can I just stop you? Can you just go back to that for a second? Yeah. Um, the New South Wales government, were they reacting to what and where was the political push to get them to do the lockout? Oh, right. So, so, so the lockout uh, was implemented 2014 and um, it uh, – so I wasn't engaged as an advocate at that time but it was – Were you at timeout then? Yeah, I was at a timeout. So I think from about 2012 there was growing awareness that we had challenges in venues uh, and so I think both police and regulators were conscious of this and – this is anecdotal because I wasn't necessarily involved in this capacity. Because you were now. a timeout at the time. Timeout at the time, yeah. Um, but but so so there was tightening up. There was things like the three strikes policy um, and, and this suite of measures, was liquor freeze put on, so no grant of new liquor licences or changes to existing licences. And the coward punch. Uh, and then and then come 2014, you had the, the coward punch incident and um, I think that, uh, you know, the the – the media interaction with politics just yep. drove this really hard. Both the major dailies in Sydney were on the same side of it. And uh, I think that they were probably surprised by the government's reaction, which was to to, to implement lockout. Um, they asked for it, but then it was like, oh my God, I didn't think they'd do it. And they and they did. And, and as you said, one of the learnings really is, can good policy decisions be made in a hurry like that. And, and it, because it was, as you said, a, bl- a relatively blunt instrument because mm. it was a, a blanket prohibition. And, and it sounds, sounds believable, right? Like who needs to be out after this, trying to get into a venue after 1.30 a.m.? Yeah, like, yeah. Haven't you had enough? Yeah, yeah. And of course, like when you sit in a parliamentary inquiry two years later or three or four years later, sorry, and um, a, an artist says, well, you know, I finished my gig at 2 a.m. and I want to go and have a, a nice drink or a, a chef. Nice yeah. Right. Like they're, they're, so again, back to when you think about everyone, who are you impacting? So, so there are people, but you can understand to someone who doesn't go out to that, there's a logic to that. Yeah. And, um, well, someone who's 60, someone who's an influencer who's 60, who goes bed at nine 30. That's right. And, and saying, and, well, why and, the fuck and, do you need to be out at two o'clock and in the morning? moreover, potentially someone that may have in their early twenties gone out and done some crazy things yeah, yeah. and thought actually thought better of that or saw stuff happen that they thought that's not that great. You know, I'm sure you'd have stories similar to mine in that era. So the, probably worse. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and so, so there was a um, understandable logic. And of course in history will show that the uh, impact of that intervention was to, uh, I, I, I guess, stop, <laughs> stop, stop those things happening. But it, the question is, was it, the appropriate tool. And I use the analogy um, in explaining that it wasn't to Parliament of what happens if you spray Roundup indiscriminately across a garden that's got weeds. You do that, you will kill the weeds, but you also kill flowering plants and edibles. And of course, if you do it too much, you'll get into the groundwater and it'll start like seeping out into, into the rest of your garden. And this is what happened with lockout. You want, once you put a restriction on um, those later trading venues, and people stop going to those later trading venues, which means that they stop going to the bar for a drink before those later trading venues, which means they potentially also stop going to dinner before the bar, et cetera, et cetera, right? That means that when you eventually walk out of the Griffin Theatre show uh, on a Thursday or Friday night in uh, Darlinghurst, there's not nowhere to go. Mm. This is an ecosystem you, we're then talking you stop, Then you don't go, then to, the you go out. Then you right. don't go to the theatre Meantime, you've got the rise of the at-home entertainment economy and in Netflix and all the rest of it making it easier and easier. And in desperation, venues who are looking for new revenue streams sending their product home because they've got no alternative, right? Like this is what happened. And so and so, over a period of time, I, I um, as the person behind Time Out that stands for getting people out of their house, and Time Out have written stories about it, but but it was almost like 
and everyone was whinging about it. And I was almost getting sick and tired of my own voice as a whinger. I'm like, you've got to stop talking, go and do something. And, and do something means what? Well, I don't know, but let's talk to MPs and see. So sort of school of hard knocks in terms of becoming an advocate. But um, we realised at that time that we needed to find a different conversation to have. And the conversation became nighttime economy, city vibrancy, culture and creativity. Because this, these are the flowering plants and edibles that were destroyed with that intervention. And, and Sydney was then not ranking well in terms of global reputation, time out itself rated Sydney's nightlife 48 out of 48 cities globally, like in what is last. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, of, of the city surveyed. Uh, and, and, and that combined with the Deloitte report in, I think, uh, around 2018, um, I think I've got my years right there, um, or, or maybe 2019, identified that the shortfall in economic value, which is a language that politicians understand, was $16 billion. That was the foregone opportunity cost of Sydney's nighttime economy. So those two things combined with, um, uh, you know, some campaigning and uh, through a few industry bodies and working collaboratively with other people allowed um, for a better discussion um, going into uh, the March 2019 election. Uh, and, and a less emotional discussion too. Yeah. Because and, and it's, it's not about people getting pissed or, oh, were you just trying to support the, the alcohol, the breweries or yeah. the, the hotel association or the – the gambling, you know, the casinos or whatever. Yeah, it's agree, actually that's right. It's a different conversation. It's and and less new, emotional and, and and a more nuanced one, right? yeah, yeah. a harder one to have, but uh, one that's capable of being had if you. It's more complex. To, that's right. In all yeah. its parts, yeah, because what you need to do is to explain the overall value of a going out economy as opposed to just what people think nightlife is, and this is the challenge with the cross. And it's not about rights. You know, as soon as you start, oh, it's my right to go out and get drunk. I mean, you, that's a difficult one to sort of talk because we do have nanny state sort of mindsets here. Or no, I'm here to control you how much you drink and how, whether you fight or not. Yeah. Um, whereas the whole cultural thing, there's no discussion there. Well, yeah, and the thing is about the rights argument is that it's 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 in terms of the counter argument, it, it takes you straight back to it's my right to do this, but the consequence of you doing that is that, right? Yeah. Like, and. And that's the police violence, say, yeah. Vincent's And it's argument. my right to have a nice, safe environment. Yeah, correct, right? So, so don't so do it. That's right. So yeah. there's the, – It doesn't work. You've got to – an ex-lawyer, right? So you've got to think about yep. this analysis. I was going to say I wanted to bring it back. So uh, to that, um, I mean, I guess your legal training um, assisted you in this sort of um, trying to work out or navigate your way through the arguments because yeah. the moment you start talking about um, emotions of all this sort of stuff and your rights, et cetera, I think you start to get into sort of deep water. Um, you've got to change. You've got to move the the discussion from that playing field to another different playing field with a totally different set of rules. And uh, and I think it's quite clever. And I don't mean in a um, manipulative way, but quite intelligent is probably a better way of me putting it. Um, for you to um, recognise that there's a different argument, and it's also about ranking us. Like I think that ranking, like I mean, are we New York or we are someplace in. Um, I know some other re re terrible place where it's full of constraints, like mm. you, you know, in um, you know, I don't know, Macedonia or you know, Kazakhstan, where you can't go out at all. You know, you know, that's right. And it appeals to another set of motivations for other people, which you just maybe think about for a second, which is that uh, it's civic pride for our civic leaders, hundred percent. Right? So like um, and 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 now, which of course they all had, even though, and it was like a problem that no one wanted to or couldn't find a solution to solve. There was political will, but not enough. Uh, and, and a lack of coordination within the sector. Well, you have to give them the argument. Yeah. And, and also argument on behalf of whom. And this is where I remember um, I've got this Monica soapbox mic and it's when some of my sartorial uh, antics, getting up on stages, speaking, this kind of thing. I got up at an arts and culture conference in, I think, 2015, 16. I said to institutional arts and culture, you need to get into this debate. Like you're, you don't understand yet that consumers are going to stop coming to your shows because we've gone and crippled the going out experience for them. And of course, come 2018, everyone's like, oh, you know what? You, we think you're right, actually. And how can we get involved in the conversation? At the time, the two uh, main, uh, I guess, um, uh, advocate groups were, you know, sort of big hotels and big music. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And those two things have been linked as sort of, and I don't necessarily agree with this, that, you know, with those two things comes violence and alcohol. But they also look a bit self-serving too. Yeah, there's that. But if you take a, a wider approach and you say, well, actually all this stuff is connected, you know, the way we, we go. And indeed it is. Indeed it is. Like they, the people do not go out uh, and for, for one thing. 
you, you know, well, not generally speaking, but if you're trying to incentivize or what is your, you ask people, what is the example of a great night out? And you know what they often reply? I've done all this to, as I was recruiting for my team, everyone pauses and goes, we were going to go and do this, but then this happened. And then they tell you that something went wrong and, you know, they ended up going and finding this like, you know, other restaurant that they never heard of or something like this, you know, or they saw a show or whatever. And, um, and that's, uh, and that's, that's because the going out economy should function like a multi-channel uh, TV service, right? Like, Oh, that's what's going on over here. That was the, some of the, the lead up. And of course the, the strategy around 24 hour economy as it's sort of been called, which takes away this not sold focus on nighttime was to, you know, look at the overall way that the going out economy makes a contribution largely economically, although it makes, as I've been discussing, cultural and uh, other contributions um, to the state. And that is a language that um, government understands. So does 24-hour economy include so, – so the role is not about uh, going out at night for a drink and entertainment, but it's about – so the role is more around 20, the 24-hour 24 24-hour economy. economy. So does that include Woolworths opening up, for example, for 24 hours? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and the best way to think about this, uh, and particularly with my – as a projects lawyer or projects infrastructure guy, it's, it's, it's about an asset. A city is an asset, and if you've got a trucking company, you probably want that truck on the road 24 hours a day if you can, right? Capacity. Capacity. Capacity use, yeah. And so, so if we've got an asset like a city that's dormant for 12 hours a day, how clever is that? Yeah. Right? It doesn't make sense. Well, the internet doesn't work that way. No, Nothing works that nothing way. Nothing sleeps, right? And yeah. so, and so um, there's a – India a, doesn't work that way. No, no, no. And, 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 and you want to um, just think about, look, it's not necessarily about getting the whole place trading at 24 hours a day, every, every street corner, et cetera. But it's about creating an environment that allows that to happen if if it if it if it could happen and it, it gives rise to opportunity. And so I look at it and think, um, can I sweat this asset a little bit further? Can we extract a bit more value from someone who's already come out and gone to the beach? How do we keep them out just a little bit longer on the foreshore along Bondi or Kuji or wherever, right? Like because that's good for business, it's good for city vibrancy, it's an attractive story for tourists, etc. This is what people come for. So so 24-hour economy is, a, I guess, a, a wider way of looking at it than just the night, and I agree entirely with that. Um, the challenge is, of course, that for the longest time, the night has always been seen as this somewhat nefarious uh, thing where, where um, you know, not good things might not necessarily where happen. We, where does this come from, I mean, for us, I mean, for Australia? I mean, England, London's 24 hours. Um, I mean, where, where does this... It's entrenched in, I think, Sydney's history, you know, to be honest, like, which is... Uh, um, the rum rebellion and everything that shit happens at night. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. um, and so I, uh, and, and, you know, and I think that we have to recognize that, uh, and, and some of the examples you focused on may, may still have drinking as a core part of the evening experience, but like the, the, it is not true that you go out only to drink or it should not be true. Right. Like, and, and when you have, and this is the challenge with the cross because, uh, the cost discussion is that what we did was brand Sydney's nightlife as a big night out. And the only reason you go out is to get pissed. Yeah. And, and that's not correct. And it's definitely not true of the larger metropolitan audience of Sydney. Cause it never it's, used to be in the cross, by the way, I'm old enough to remember when cross was top at and cane. Yeah. Right. There was a Latin quarter. Yeah, right. There was all these nightclubs everywhere. Okay. And then the cross started then to descend right into drugs and alcohol and uh, strip joints. Yeah. And, uh, and people went up there more to gawk. At yeah. that period, yeah. and then usually when you got there, you would had too much to drink anyway, so you're going to get yourself into trouble. So, um, but prior to that, King's Cross is where people dressed up, mm. dressed up mm. to go there. Like it was a night out. Yeah. In your role, yeah. Do you specifically concentrate on somewhere like the Cross? Yeah. So, so I like guess like at King's Cross doing yeah. a great job. Um, yeah. I don't know if you know yeah. that mob. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. I mean, they've been on the podcast, so they, they are fantastic. I mean, because they're bringing back the Cross of the old. And what my role really is about, and I've thought about this and it's being shaped to be honest. And this is why like, you know, for me, this is a great session because I, I need to talk to people and learn and, and get different perspectives as I shape the role yeah. and, uh, hasn't been done before. Should it wear purple shoes? I'm deciding to, right? Like the, the, the reason I say that is that what we, I think the role and the role of government here is to, is to create the environment and the framework for cultural expression to happen. Now, I don't know whether that looks like Dulcie's or Jacoby's at a bar in Newtown, right? It's not for me to decide that. It's for me to help 
that that environment, the regulatory environment, um, and all the levers that government have to allow that conversation to happen and allow a product for consumption by a wide population that's sustainable. Either right? and succeed or fail. Yeah, that's and right. Because the and market will decide. They will, that's correct. And so it's not up to me to decide that this precinct should be this um, what, what or, or that. Having said that, um, when I say framework and going back to the purple that I'm wearing, uh, there's a concept in the strategy that is called purple flag. It's not called purple flag um, specifically, but there's a, it's really referring to a successful scheme in the UK that um, has run for five years. You go to the beach and you know where it's safe to swim because why? There's some flags that tell you. When you go out, you go to a district that's safe to go out in because why? There's a flag that tells you. And the requirements for precincts to obtain a purple flag must be that they are safe. They have good transport in and out. They have a diversity of offering. So not a concentration of one type of activity or another. And so, so at the end of it, what does success look like for me? Purple flag districts, precincts that tell a different story for different parts of Sydney across the metropolitan. So if that means in Lakemba, we're going to go and celebrate the best of, uh, um, our Muslim culture and uh, and Ramadan at a certain time of year, fantastic. If it means as I'll be latest night in Harris Park near Parramatta, and it's my subcontinental people, and I'll be putting on an aquila or two as I, you know, indulge in some of all my dad's practices of three course degustations as I walk the street, then absolutely fine as well. The city's got to be for everyone, and we have five million people here, not one hundred thousand people concentrated in one area, and so the and and if you get that right you then are able to tell the fine-grained story of Sydney. So if you start thinking about the economics of this and really what my job is about, it's really about making Sydney an attractive place for two things, for people who want to work, live and play here, and for capital to come invest here. And if those two things happen, you get new industries which create jobs for the future. And so Sydney, New South Wales has an incredible opportunity right at the moment because of its management of the pandemic as, as we come out into the recovery curve. And so, again, the job is being shaped. My job is to, make, is to get that uh, asset recommissioned and recommissioned well, and that, but to produce a new product for Sydney, one that is purple. The elephant in the room is, of course, lack of tourism. Yeah. Um, you know, and I guess to some extent you've got, definitely got no control of that. Um, but that's a political will um, and that, that, that's a problem at the moment. I'll give you a, a specific example that I'd like, just like to raise with you. Mm. As a 24-hour economy commissioner, let me raise this one with you. I have a reasonable amount of property in Darlinghurst and I've had one property there for 20-something years, which is a hotel. It's called Morgan's Hotel. And it's across the road from um, Tropicana. Um, and in that street used to be four or five cafes, which there was Latteria, that's still there, but there was, uh, yeah, you know, there's Tropicana, there's, you know, quite a, quite a few of them. They were open like four in the morning till seven, eight at night. And then there was bars that opened up after that. And, um, and then there were hotels, like small, not, not pubs, but um, accommodation hotels. Yep. Small three, four star hotels, of which I own one, um, which are always 90% occupied by mostly people from overseas. Mm. But, like, you know, people might want to go to St. Vincent's Hospital, whatever the case may be. Today, I'm seeing a lot of those hotels get sold for yeah. a quarter of their price because they're dead. Yep. They can't get anybody in there. Yeah. It's close to the city, it's a prime real estate, yet it's dead. And it's lost all its heart, and, for me anyway, its heart and soul. Um, whereas you go to Greece or Italy or France, the footpaths are full, full of people and you're weaving your way through. Yeah, that's that's right. part of the, the feeling. That's, that's the right. sense. That's awesome. That's the spontaneity. That's, that's what you want. Um, how, do you, how do you, what do you do with that? I mean, what are your powers, or so to speak? Um, can you intervene? Yeah, are you so, able to talk to so, people? Yeah, so like mine's a, um, like a, a coordination role within government. So there's a few aspects to the role depending on which stakeholder set. And within government, uh, it's to, I guess, be a champion for the night. So going back to the context, it's tended to be, as I said, historically this thing that is, is we regulate for the day and we just say no at night, you know. This mm. is kind of the – and so I, my job is to go into, into the many government departments, of which are about seven or eight even, and explain to um, 
colleagues in other areas of government the value of nighttime economy and the importance of um, uh, of generating and inspiring part of the city, right? How do you so, fight against nimbyism, though? Like when some, uh, nim- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like someone yeah, says, that's right. yeah. one person says, I don't want that going yeah. on tonight because I like yeah. to go to bed at 8pm yeah. I want to watch Netflix at 8pm and I don't want any noise coming from down there because I can hear someone popping a champagne cork. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a, that's a hard one um, because you're always going to get um, a, uh, you, you know, series of objections. The the And I don't think there's an easy answer to it. And this is one of the things that, you know, literally keeps me awake at night, which is how do I manage people making noise complaints? Like, because, because it doesn't matter what you end up with. If someone's going to complain and call the police and the police are going to turn up, right? Like, say, so you can do all this work and then eventually you're down to the power of an individual versus the power of a community. There's this concept which, uh, uh, you, you know, has... Um, some value, I believe, um, and it's that of what is called in other parts of the world a business improvement district. And going back to this purple flag thing, it's actually how in the UK they uh, administer the purple flag. So the businesses of an area get together and say, you know what, we value an area and we want to see it evolve or in, in this direction, not in another direction. And that then becomes a, um, a desirable area to go to but you preserve the character of it. You don't let it get overdeveloped necessarily, right? So this is one of the yep. challenges in, in Sydney because oftentimes um, vested interests can come along and, you know, find a way through the system and then take what would, would have once been a great area and change its use, um, not necessarily for the best. So, so people need to get active. Businesses need to get active. They may do that if they understand that what you're really trying to create is an attractive precinct to come to. So is, is what you're doing trying to draw people from other places to come to a spot or you're trying to increase the number of people who want to live in that particular place? Uh, well, I guess like, um, there. Yeah, yeah, it depends on the area, I think. Um, so, um, and, and my job, as I said, is for the whole of the city. So if you think about... Um, um, but, but I do actually think it's a bit of both because the example that everyone points to in conversations like this is straight to Newtown and Enmore. Yeah. Right? Like, so on the one hand, the cross, we had these challenges, 300% footfall increase in Newtown during lockout without an increase in incidents at uh, RPA um, from violence. How do they do it? Well, they did it for a few reasons. One is that the own business owners said, you know what, we're not going to tolerate party buses coming to Newtown. We're going to turn them away. Right. When we see groups of people looking for trouble, we're going to communicate with each other via a WhatsApp group and say, look, we just had 12 people in here. This is yeah, what they're about. We're going to pass on. We're going to work with the police around this as well. So call the cops now, etc. You also have, and this is one for you, like a diversity, a, a greater diversity of property ownership. When you have a greater diversity of property ownership, you get different cultural expression happening at the bottom of it because it's not one landlord deciding that they're going to have like, you know, that the area is going to be something. It's different. The different personalities of landlords and their, therefore their tenants is allowed to be expressed. Mm. Lower density. And so in, in terms of the going out economy, uh, what Newtown Enmore has that other areas I think can learn from is this, at this point in history, up to us to try and keep it this way now, are we going to value a theatre or are we going to shut it down? Are we going to allow a, a, a large-scale development or are we going to oppose it, Right. But it's got an audience of people who can walk up to that strip from anywhere within a three-kilometer radius. So guess what that means? It's free. There's no travel cost, right? They get there, and there's a diversity of things that they can experience: entertainment, alcohol, whatever they're up to. They and 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 some retail, right? This this combination. And so I think there's a cultural shift that has to happen there, and I can't do that myself. Um, and I would hope, and I would urge the advocacy groups, who uh, one of which is the Nighttime Industries Association, which I chair, to start thinking about these types of issues. One of the most interesting people I've met in this journey uh, that's helped is my mate Rennie Adabo, who runs Sonos. You know Sonos, the yeah. uh, speaker system? So what's the head of Sonos doing sitting in front of a parliamentary inquiry about going out? Because surely he benefits if everyone stays at home, right? This is a point he made to the committee. If I'm sitting here telling you you've got a problem, how big a problem do you think you have? Because he knows that his speakers are content delivery for stories and the stories that people should in the longest time hear are the stories from artists from their area. And live music needs a vibrant, a vibrant uh, scene in which it can tour. And so these things are connected. 
And what he knows is if you can change consumer behaviour, you don't necessarily need to put it on government to do. And that was the approach that we took with our campaigning. We just said, put a value on the night. We as punters need to say, we care about the night, we value it, and, and we prize it because it brings this colour to our city and it gives us a fuller life. And in that context, having an apartment on King Street in Newtown with a bit of noise between the hours or whatever is fine and it's actually a better life. Um, my job is to make sure that, that the bureaucracy that I work with is, is, is doing its bit to enable that. And ironically for me, Mark, like when I look back at this uh, journey I've had from engineer to lawyer and now in this role, I'm saying to people, you know what project finance and PPPs are? Private sector partnering with government to deliver an, an asset. This isn't civic infrastructure like a road or a hospital. This is social infrastructure now because this is, this is why all that stuff exists. And really like my job is to bring those skills that I've learned in those other areas and look for these partnering approaches to deliver in line with um, what our policymakers have now set out. I guess to some extent, whilst you have the title, you've got to build influence. Yeah, that's right. You, Mike Rodriguez, has got to become yeah. an influential person whereby the bureaucracy and various other parts of the of all the componentry yeah. of this. Yeah. I mean, you are an engineer, but you know, you know how componentry yeah. works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've yeah. got it's got to sit and pay attention yeah. to you. And you've nailed the point in the chapter or the book that I'm in, which is that I've gone out and built influence in consumer audiences. I've gone out and built influence within the industry, having chaired the nighttime and established that organisation, and and I have a, a lot of industry goodwill at the moment um, because of the work that I've done. Done a reasonable job already when it comes to our elected uh, representatives, but I now need to go in and build that level of influence within the working government yeah. within the infrastructure. That's it. right, yeah. And, and those city the councils. People who are there no matter who the Premier is. Yeah, that's correct. Or which yeah, part is it, party right. is and in so, power. So, you know, why purple shoes? Well, it's part of how I'm going to do it. Pay attention. And it's, it's, it's a through line. It's, it's, it's a, a through line. and Totally. Yeah. It's and, a pretty cool job. Uh, it's a, and you know, it's, mm. it's a cool job. It's a, it's a very challenging um, uh, proposition. Mm. Um, you're young enough, though, to be able to stay with it for long enough to put a dent in it. I mean, I mean, culturally, I think you've got had like a, enough experience, I mean, particularly coming from your background, like mm, mm. grow where you grew up, blah blah blah. Your parents. I, I'm, um, you know, I guess I don't. I don't want to say daunted, but I, I don't. I'm not underestimating the size of the challenge, and I know that it's going to come down to multiple parties and and building that network as you've identified correctly um, within government is, is, is I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to do that right at the moment. Um, you need everyone to come together. In New South Wales government, you need the local councils and you need the industry. And the last part is you can get all of that right. But if you don't get the product, what we end up with, a future Sydney, what experiences people want right, the punter's going to stay at home anyway. So we need to actually think about that as what are we producing and for whom? What is Gen Y and Gen Z, what do they want from their city? How do they want to experience it as much as we need to make sure that we're still inclusive for those wider demographics? So, Mike, I've, I normally ask all the questions, but I'm going to give you a chance to ask me a question. Will you go on for me? There's a Victor Hugo saying, which you probably heard, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. In your experience over decades, how important is timing to the success of an enterprise? Um, it what. Probably not timing. It, it is timing, but what what I what I think here means by where the time has come, where its time has come, basically means that there is aggregate demand, therefore support for it. Um, I think COVID has actually put you right in that position because I think we've all realised that shit. We like going out. I mean, originally we went shit. This is a good staying home. I don't have to catch it. In my case, I don't have to catch an airplane anywhere. Um, you know, which was great because I normally travel once a week. Um, you know, I can I can. I don't have to talk to anybody. I can just do everything by – I can choose how – telephone, Zoom, or whatever it was. Um, and then after, after about six months, Tom, I started to think, shit, I really actually miss talking to people. I really miss sitting in a cafe and being able to sit across from somebody. I realised as soon as I didn't have something, I realised what I missed. And I think that's across the board. That's a survey one, but that is across the board. Everyone who I've spoken has the same experience. So I think in relation to that um, particular saying, saying, the time has come right now 
for whereby everybody's realized how important it is to be able to enjoy entertainment venues in terms of whatever it is they're looking for. So I think that's perfect timing for you, for you. And for this commission that you are now the head of, I think that's, I don't think there could have ever been a better incident. By the way, COVID has been a great incident for a whole lot of things, like getting people up to, up the curve on digitization, et cetera. Mm. Timing right now is perfect for your, your mission probably, mm. perfect for your time. Qu- question is whether or not you can take advantage of that. Yeah. I mean, it's about executing the product into that aggregate demand yep. and for you to know what that aggregate demand is. That's going to be the issue. Mm. Or is it going to be so fucking complicated and so many parts to it that you're going to take three or four years to find out what it actually is? And the question is, do you wait till you perfect it? To perfect, to perfect understanding what the data tells you about the aggregate demand or you just go for one thing and go hard and just build on it? Mm. That, 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 that's what I'm going to find interesting to watch mm. from afar how you execute into that aggregate demand mm. or into that great timing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great insight. And um, I, I tend to agree. The job has become more attractive because of the pandemic because everyone realises that from the Premier to Mike Rodriguez to my daughter, the value of going out, and that wasn't the case prior to the pandemic. But and I would say don't ideas. overcomplicate it though. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've got some ideas on the execution. But, but I, that could I, because I think if you overthink it, you'll end up executing nothing mm-hmm. and because you'll no doubt run into roadblocks yeah. and there'll be people pushing down on you and then you just get strangled by the system. Yeah. Mike Rodriguez, commissioner for the 24-hour economy. I think that's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> I mean, it really, it. Is, it, really is, it. it really is cool. And uh, well done um, in terms of influencing um, at least – not the appointment, but the formation of this initiative by government. I mean, you've put a lot into it. Mm. Now I guess the big thing is your execution. Can you execute it? Thanks very much. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistance, Jonathan Leondis. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.